Welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio, the podcast where marketing leaders inside and outside the sciences share their creative ideas and practical approaches to increasing your marketing ROI. Here's your host, Chris Connor. Jamie Geyer is the Chief Marketing Officer at DexCare. And in her role at DexCare, Jamie is responsible for establishing the company as a category leader in modernizing the way consumers discover, access, and choose their healthcare services from digital search to booking an appointment. And she comes here today with 25 years of healthcare tech experience at several different companies. Jamie, welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio. I am super glad to be here, Chris. All right, this will be fun. We're going to talk kind of about sales cycles, long customer journeys, and relationships. You have experienced marketing very high-value systems with long sales cycles. So talk about the customer journey and the kinds of things you think about to build relationships, particularly with new customers, both digitally and face-to-face. Well, I've been in this space for about 25 years now, Chris, and uh, the buyer journey really hasn't changed a whole lot. It's it's changed from the way that we can engage and convert buyers into customers, but for the most part, the sales cycle has remained the same. It's very, very long. And so I've uh, primarily focused on selling enterprise software where you have upwards of eight to 10 different buyers. You have influencers that can recommend solutions. And during the course of a 12 to 18 month buyer cycle, you're having to figure out ways to keep people engaged and to make your brand memorable because you're competing with thousands of other vendors in the same space. And namely in, in healthcare, you know, we, we sell into provider organizations. You've got maybe a thousand providers that are part of your marketplace. And so if you think about the thousands of vendors going after the same buyers, you're constantly thinking of ways that you've got to break through and make sure that your message is is getting through, being heard, and that it resonates with a problem you're you're hoping to solve for that health system. But that hasn't changed. The tools have changed in which we can now orchestrate different sales and marketing mo- motions to make sure that we're reaching 10 different buyers in addition to all of the influencers that you want to bring along on the journey. Um, And so you got to think about it in the terms of how do you keep them engaged and how do you make your brand memorable through those different moments in time as you are bringing them along, especially like in the case of DexCare, we've been in the marketplace for two years. So not only Am I marketing a product? I'm building a brand around the company. And so you're having to do a lot of heavy lifting, especially in the category in which we're in. And so there's a value exchange where you're educating the buyer as well as sharing with them how you're solving a problem that they have. Yeah. So that was an eye-opener. I mean, I understand the 8 to 10 buyers and then the influencers, but didn't really think about hundreds, if not thousands of competitors and thousands of providers who are going to be the end users of whatever the team decides to implement, right? Right. And so the providers and the team probably bombarded with content messaging from competitors, right? So not only sticking out, but how do you stick out without being annoying? 
I'm just going to get right to it, right? I know. I mean, that's it. Overwhelming. Let's say it in, in a nicer way, right? Right, right. Well, I think you can't sell to this marketplace. You have to be a trusted advisor. You need to be providing value in terms of education. That's what they're looking for. They're looking for ways that they can be better at what they do every single day. They don't want to be sold to. If you're selling, you're going to be put right into their delete folder. And by the way, many of these health system executives, they're getting 215 emails a day. The first ones that are going to get deprioritized are going to be the ones from vendors who are kind of like vultures circling around and trying to get your attention. What has not changed about this industry in the 25 years that I've been in it, Chris, is simply it's a relationship business. Because the sales cycle is so long, because for the most part, vendors have overpromised and underdelivered on expectations of what their software can do. It's a referral business. So while we have tools, digital tools like email and paid advertising, which are important because there's a lot of different touch points, you got to be visible where buyers right. are. And sometimes that's in a digital realm. But the reality is your relationships, the relationships that you're building with these buyers, the word of mouth component where your customers hopefully are singing your praises, that they're referring you to to other buyers, that's really simply the way to break through is that, which gets down to making sure that you have happy customers and a product that works because that's going to be your biggest demand gen engine. Yeah. So how do you, I love that. Um, how do you tee those happy customers up if you do to tell the right stories to their friends about the problems you solve for them in a way that makes it really natural for them and easy to uptake on the other end. Yeah, so we spend a lot of time with our early adopter clients and we capture their the or the ROI that they're getting from the product. We ask them questions, how is it going? What value are you deriving from this because we don't know what we don't know. And we simply ask them, would you share this? And if they're happy, if they believe in you, if that trust is there, they will be willing to go out and endorse your product. They won't do it all of the time if that product does not work. But if they're seeing value and you've simply made their lives better, then they will be your greatest referral network. Nice. So let's talk about um, tactics that you measure and and the ones you don't. And how do you put a value on and sell to the CEO and CFO the things that you can't measure? Right. Always well, it's, it's, I know, I know. And I think we've gotten into this trap of if you can't measure it, then it's not worth doing, which is a huge mistake, especially in health and life sciences. It's a mistake because you need to be where your buyers are and you can't always measure that. So here's a perfect example. We were, uh, we spend time in uh, doing PR. So we're on podcasts, kind of like yours. Uh, we do put money towards or investments towards PR because we want to be able to share stories out where our buyers are reading. We had an inbound request come in and it was a, with a very prominent health system. And in our form fill, we always ask, where did you hear about us? And this person indicated that they heard us on a podcast 
and they read an article about us. Now, those are two things that are very difficult to measure unless you just simply ask somebody, how did you hear about us? But if, if I didn't have a traditional way of measuring the hard ROI, then I would not invest in those channels. But we know that they work because we know that people listen to podcasts. We know that they read because they're trying to get educated. And so we do spend effort there. Those are the best ways that I can prove out that the things that are difficult to measure, we should still be doing. Um, and so we can't fall into the trap that everything has to be around email marketing and everything has to be about paid media. I mean, it's just a huge mistake in this industry, as we all know. If you've spent time in it, you just know that. I think that there's other kind of traditional ways that we we uh, engage with our buyers, like trade shows and events. There's there's ways that you can measure the activity there. But how do you place a value on the meeting that you had with the chief digital officer of a major health system and the outputs from that? That's challenging to do. But we know that it has a lot of merit and a lot of value. And so I just simply base my metrics on implied attribution because we know those channels work. And then, yes, the other things that we can measure measure with, with a high degree of precision, but they're only, you know, a touch point in a moment of time, and that time spans 12 to 18 months. Right. So a couple of observations there. One, I think if I know what you're talking about, you know, the form fill, because we've talked about Chris Walker before, it's not mm -hmm. a drop-down. Are you using drop-down, or do you say, you tell me, write it out, what Tell me, us. yeah. Tell me, tell me. Can't be a drop down. It's got to be a tell me. Yeah, and then um, where was I going with the other one? Oh, just thinking about the things that you can measure, like you know, digital ads and emails. Those are the very same things that are the easiest to skip, delete, move past. Whereas if someone tells you they read an article, went to a podcast, that was them. They had to put some effort just to get there, right? They chose right. that right. as opposed to it's – it's an opt-in as opposed to an opt-out in a sense. Well, it's uh, – you would consider it to be high buyer intent because they yeah. took the time. They took time out of their day to listen to what you had to say in the case of a podcast or to read the article about how to do better in a certain area. They took the time to do that as opposed to quickly looking at an ad. But I'm not dismissing the importance of paid media and email and some of those other ways. You have to think about your outreach and engagement from a multi-channel approach because you want to be where your buyers are and it's not linear and they're all over the place. Uh, yeah. we, we happen to spend a big portion of our media budget on LinkedIn, for example. That happens to be the channel where a lot of our buyers are, and there's a lot of thought leadership. And so if anything, we've really focused our paid media on a single channel, and we want to get really, really good at that. And so that's where we're placing a lot of our investments. But it's one of many. We know as soon as we capture their attention, a relationship begins and that's where we have to start developing even higher levels of trust and rapport uh, beyond just what they see with us in a digital way. Can you talk a little bit about the kinds of thought leadership things you're doing on LinkedIn? Because I think this is an important thing that people aren't taking enough advantage of. Well, you know, to be clear, our customers are the greatest thought leaders on the subjects that matter to us. 
because they live and breathe it every day. We're simply a partner to them to solve problems. And so we spend a lot of time with our clients simply promoting their own thought leadership on these topics. That's number one. Two, uh, we do spend time on uh, building content that is education-rich. Again, we're not trying to sell, but we are trying to persuade and influence our buyers towards a certain position or how uh, to solve a problem in a certain way. And that just requires education, especially in this space, Chris, where you have some dominant software vendors who like to make the claim that they can do everything. They also happen to be the exact same vendors that have overpromised, underdelivered. And so the marketplaces is slightly, they become cynical and rightly so, I get it. Again, I've been in the space for 25 years and I used to work for one of those vendors. And so we're having to do a lot of extra work to really differentiate ourselves from these other players in terms of what our systems can or cannot do. And the best way to demonstrate that is through the customers that actually use your product and are getting value from it. That is the best way. That's where we're replacing a lot of our thought leadership. Now, we do make investments, Chris, in, in associations and industry memberships where a lot of our health system executives go. Uh, we, we invest in speaking opportunities, but what we do is we invest our personal time in simply being there and scheduling meetings and spending time with them. That visibility is super important. Nice. All right, let's shift uh, a little bit more towards uh, the creative side here. So you've mentioned elsewhere that marketers have moved away from creativity. Talk a little bit more about what, what do you mean by that? What I mean by that is creativity is very difficult to measure. You, you can't really measure it outside the performance of where you've applied that creativity to. And so we get so laser focused, again, on the metrics that the pendulum has swung to focusing on the performance of the channel and not necessarily what you're feeding the channel. So I'm a huge proponent of having inside creative teams who really understand your marketplace and your brand. That creative team is going to create that exact content that we need, those things that bring our brand to life, that become the ammunition for the channels that we've set up. I can have the greatest uh, demand gen engine. I've got it all set up. I've got the infrastructure. I've got the team. But if I'm not constantly feeding it with things of value that get the reach to our buyers, it doesn't matter. So I think that we've... we've um, We've, we've swung the, pen, the pendulum so far that we continue to forget the importance of creativity. The creative aspect, too, is the thing that um, can be very challenging to, um, to track and, and to measure. But we know that it works. We know that people are visual thinkers, for example. And so the way that you can capture their attention in a very short amount of time is the way that you can be creative in the way that you deliver a message, that you deliver an image. And so those things actually matter when it comes to capturing someone's attention and their attention span is already so short. Yeah. All right. I'm going to take a little side trip here. Okay. Um, because we're talking about creativity and memorable messages. And so what's resonating for me this week is – I actually wrote a post. I haven't put it up on LinkedIn yet about Jimmy Buffett, oh. who sadly yes. passed away this passed weekend. Away. So, th um, and what made 
um, him special was, you know, partly his use of language. So it wasn't just, you know, a soundtrack for a lot of us, but his powers of observation and description and that, that level of creativity and kind of the words he used and painting very vivid pictures of these people and places that I think was part of the magic of how he connected so deeply with so many people. So I'm going to throw that out there as well. You know what? The thing about Jimmy Buffett is he brought you into his world or he went into yours. And that was the power of the words he used in his songs, uh, even the visuals he used on stage or in his videos. But he knew that and he was a great storyteller and people could connect with that. So let's talk about that for a second, because part of creativity is your ability to tell really good stories, because that's how you connect. If you want to break through and reach somebody, you better have a really good story. And here's why. There's been a lot of research done on this, Chris, where the power of story, there's science behind that. There's a lot of science behind human connection and getting on the same brave uh, brain wavelength through storytelling. There's these neural networks. They just tend to connect when somebody is emotionally connected to the story that you're telling. This is why it's so important. And let me give you an example of that. I could easily go out and tell a story about how wonderful my product is. My product makes it easier for health systems to be discovered when people are searching for care. And once you have their attention, you can easily navigate them to the best fit care options because we understand what your capacity is and we're going to optimize that. Okay, great. That's what we do. But here's the impact story. The mom at 5 a.m., she's a single mom. She wakes up and she's got a fever. She's got three young ones, Chris, but she doesn't feel well. And the last thing that she wants to do is to get those three kids dressed, packed into a car, and on the road to urgent care. What she wants is the convenience of being able to do a virtual visit so she can stay at home and not worry about the children and she can get access to a doctor immediately. That's the story. That's the, that's the single mom who wants the ability to quickly search, make an appointment, conduct a virtual visit so that she doesn't have to pack up three young kids who are probably crying and doing all sorts of things. She just simply wants to feel better. That's the power of the story. So that's the difference. I probably, when I share that story, and by the way, that's a personal story for me, but when I share that story, there's going to be a lot of people in the audience who goes, oh my gosh, I get that. I totally understand that. And you just connected with them. And they're going to go, I want to learn more. Why do more hospitals not have this technology? Yeah, that should be that easy. This is a no-brainer. But because I told an actual human story that connected with the audience, they're more uh, inclined to go and now research that solution. Yeah, because there are people in that story. The first version is a faceless company and a product. Right. The story has people on a journey. Exactly. And you could easily tell a story around the provider who is overworked and feeling the pressures of the 20 patients that she's going to have to see that day. And the health system could easily 
you know, optimize the capacity and manage, you know, do some um, load balancing. And maybe some of those patients could be easily seen by a PA so that the doctor is practicing at the top of her license and then she's happy. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to tell a story around that, but that's the power. Coming back to Jimmy Buffett, he did that. Like, he connected with people. You know, he made the beach and all of that just feel real. Who doesn't want to escape, you know, somewhere to Jimmy Buffett's world? And he was very, very good at that. Yeah, and he built an empire on it. And he (laughs) built telling stories. (laughs) He did. He did. And he had great music. So (laughs) yeah, yeah. So um, all right. So on that same along those lines, but a little left turn here. I know we both value artists and writers. How have you experimented your team with ChatGPT or other generative AI? What opportunities do you see? Uh, For my team, so product aside, because obviously as a software company, we're looking at ways that AI can improve our feature set and and even get more usability and adoption among our clients. And to, you know, uh, there's a lot of things there on a product side. From a team perspective, we are using it. We're experimenting with it in a couple of different ways. Um, when we have to turn around copy very quickly, we can draft something, throw it into ChatGPT, and with some directions on tone and personality, it, it's it's pretty darn good at coming back with some recommendations on more creative ways to say something. So there's that piece. But by the way, we always start somewhere first, or we always end up editing what comes back. So the right. writer is never, the art of writing is never replaced from that standpoint. We are actually looking at technology as part of our MarTech stack uh, on the use of AI to simply become more efficient and productive at we as, as what we do as a team, uh, especially because we're a small and mighty team. And so we're exploring different technologies simply for that for that reason. But it, just, it it has been interesting to see some of my designer and writer friends who, you know, of course there would be some threat to their craft of what they do, who are kind of embracing it um, from the standpoint of with guardrails, this can be helpful if you are trying to create a lot of content and you need help and maybe some design inspiration. It's good for that. So they're using it in ways that doesn't replace the value of what they actually, the human provides in that. Yeah, I'm happy to report that that's mostly what I see so far. Now, maybe we're at the top of a slippery slope. I'm not totally sure, but I mean, I I am totally on board with you. I'm either using it, you know, to give me ideas or to make suggestions, but the human never leaves it. And that's kind of how I'm seeing everybody, everybody deploy AI so far. Well, look, it's it's imperfect. It it is, and I think it could be a helpful aid to different occupations, many of them actually. But we also need to know that they're inherently flawed at the same time, and they're flawed because of who and what feeds them <laughs> and right. the intelligence. So we have to remember that. We have to yeah. remember that. So I think there's a there's a use for it with guardrails, and you just need to know what those guardrails are. I'll I'll hint at an upcoming episode on my other podcast, CC Life Science, where I talk to somebody and he says, in certain environments, and this is a person who does, you know, heavy duty data analytics and so on, like 
They don't have those problems because the AI they're using is made for a very specific purpose. So the hallucinations that the rest of us are experiencing on ChatGPT, apparently not such a problem for them. No, but it, it you know what's been fascinating, especially in our space, Chris, is um, I've been... I've been surprised to see how many clinicians are now seeing the possibilities of AI being your your search, your care search, your doctor, your, you know, for obviously low acuity types of care and treatment. Mm -hmm. But I remember the day when we used to chuckle at consumers like my mom who would simply Google what her symptoms might be, and then she gets all of this stuff, and before you know it, she's got 20 different conditions, and she's trying to sort through, right? So now, so back then, we're like, don't do that, and now we're saying, oh, well, look, AI, there might be some legitimacy to actually using it for that purpose or to augment, you know, clinicians, so it's been an interesting shift to see that. Yeah, for sure. All right, now we're going to shift uh, one more time to sort of the career thing. So, uh, Life science, uh, a lot of marketers start on the science side or the technology, they move into marketing. What's your best advice to get them a good start in their marketing careers? And I think it's um, I think it's simply to join the communities where they can really learn best practices and have a go-to to get that, uh, that information. Um, the other is, and so I belong to a lot of communities, and I didn't start out on the tech science side in terms of being a software developer, engineer, or a scientist. Um, I've always been a marketer, but I still spend a lot of times, you know, a lot of my time in my community simply getting information on best practices, how to solve a problem that I'm trying to solve, vendor selection, that sort of thing. But Marketing is actually not that difficult. And I probably just irritated a lot of my my marketing peers who are like, yes, it is. It's very hard. There's a lot of hard things. I think we have one of the, the toughest jobs in the business world. We do. It's easy from the standpoint of this. We are all consumers. We know what resonates with ourselves as buyers. We know how we we search for products. We know how to, you know, kind of uh, sift out the BS, we we know. And so if you simply know that, marketing becomes a little bit easier to embrace. What's a good message? Where do I go to search? How do I want to be taken care of as a customer? We all know that. We spend so much time doing uh, Google reviews and stuff because we either had a good experience or we didn't. And those are our buyers as well. And so if you just know that and you know the basics of what a person looks for in a product, how they want to be taken care of as a customer, it makes it a little bit easier to to get into marketing. But your communities are really important because that's that's where you're going to go to to get answers when you might get stuck. Yeah. All right. So let's finish with the one thing you told me last time we spoke about marketers interacting with their internal customers who may be scientists or doctors, because I think this is really important. This is important, and it gets to that topic that a lot of different groups are talking about, and that's imposter syndrome. And I actually brought this up in a in different conversation that I was having. So I started my career. I've always, as I mentioned, I've always been a marketer. I found the thing that really fuels me, and I feel very blessed that I found that. 
I've always been marketing in the healthcare space and in the technology space. And so because of that, I've been in close proximity to very, very smart people who have advanced degrees. They could be a doctor, could be a scientist, um, it could be an engineer, but I've always been in close proximity. These are very, very smart people. So it's easy to naturally have imposter syndrome in terms of of what I do versus what they do. Like they're actually building things that are um, making a difference in the world and in our communities. But I was reminded by a CEO when I had this conversation, this was kind of midway through my career. And he simply said to me, but Jamie, your role is to take all of those ideas and those products to market because that's what they don't know what to do. So they can create the best product, but if it sits on a shelf and collects dust and never gets out there to be used by people for the benefit of humanity, then it doesn't matter. Your job is to make sure that people discover that technology, start using the technology, and they get the benefit of it. That's really important. And there is an art and there is a science to what marketers do. There simply is. And it's a skill. So going actually back to the scientist or the technologist that wants to get into, into this field, you know, th- there are some skills and expertise that you have to have because you don't want to get so enamored with your product that you miss how to actually deliver it in a way that people will want to embrace it. Yeah. Here's what I've seen <clears throat> while you said that. Like, those people that you say are really smart, which is part of the reason why marketers might be intimidated. They're smart in a different way. They're building things based on physics and chemistry where there are rules that are well understood. You're telling stories or marketers are telling stories and making connections from my brain to your brain in a way that's not well understood. But I mean, that's the practice, the art part of it that is, I'm sure there is science under there. Maybe we don't understand it as well, but okay, takes- but there. Yeah, and there, there is science. And I hope um, when I say, you know, the, the, you're surrounded by really, really smart people. Well, marketers are too. What I mean by yeah. that, and I think you kind of hit on it, is you have people that are highly specialized in a field that requires advanced knowledge and advanced degrees. It's highly specialized. Um, and that can be intimidating. But to your point, there is a science to what we do too. And I gave an example earlier, which was simply this. There's a science behind how you tell a story that right. actually has to do with physiology. It has to do with hormones. It has to do with lots of different things in terms of how people uh, respond and engage with another human being. That is science. And the way that you deliver a story, which is a creative component, that's the best bridging of it. But if you know those things about psychology, physiology, and all of uh, the things that make us um, human and want to listen and embrace, that is, you have to understand human behavior to understand how to do really good marketing. Right. I just hope that that message gets through, that it should be empowering to marketers to not be intimidated um, by people who have advanced degrees, who studied something for a long time and acquired their skills just in a different process, really. In a different process. But what those engineers and those scientists and those clinicians do not have is the knowledge and the skills for how you actually go to market with a product and idea and get people to want to use it, adopt it, and get benefit from it. 
And that is our superpower. That yep. is our superpower. And without it, nobody gets paid. And no one gets paid. And companies don't grow. And they don't scale. <laughs> exactly. So you have a lot of CMOs who now position themselves as growth CMOs because they know that. They know that growth comes through the art and science of what we do. Nice. Awesome place to finish. Jamie Geyer, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a blast. Thank you, Chris. I love being here. Hey, if you're still listening, that tells me you enjoyed the podcast. But don't tell me, tell your friends, and I'll be back soon with another episode. Okay, you can tell me too. Send an email, chris at lifesciencemarketingradio.com. Bye-bye.